Well, please do turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1, second book of the New Testament. Um, Mark was probably the first to write one of the four Gospels, an associate of the Apostle Peter, writing, it seems, to a Gentile readership because he explains things that Gentiles wouldn't understand. He translates Hebrew words, for example, and quite possibly writing to residents of Rome itself, so capital city people like us. And in case you didn't know, we plan, God willing, uh, towards the end of March next year to act out the whole of this book, Mark's Gospel, as theater in the round in this space one weekend. So it's good for us to get to know the script. By the way, the actors will be from us, all 18 of them. Something to think about. Anyway, let's read what Mark has to say. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt round his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when Jesus came up out of the water, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, let's pray for God's help.
Our Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful truths about Jesus, even this morning, for his name's sake. Amen. Well, I wonder how you're feeling about the Queen's death and our new king, Charles III. It's over 300 years since we had a King Charles. Are you someone who thinks about Charles? Yes, my king, are you putting up this one? Or are you someone who's saying, not my king? Well, that's a whole debate, isn't it? And we're not gonna go there. But whatever you think of Charles, Mark, the writer who's beginning of his book we've just read, he wants us to see that when it comes to Jesus, it is such good news about the king. No question about it. And verse 1 of our reading of this book, the very first phrase, tells us that Mark is about to give us, well, the word is translated the beginning. It's literally Genesis. It's the origins. I think that's probably a better word to translate it and understand it. It's the origins of the good news, that's what gospel means, of Jesus. Now, before we go any further, we need to realize that Mark wants us to see right from the outset that, that this is a good news story that he's writing. Because the gospel means good news. And if you look at the end of our reading, verse 15 or 14 and 15, and the beginning of our reading, verse 1, you'll see he's got that word gospel. There it is in verse 1, the beginning or the origin of the gospel of Jesus. Verse 14, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So it's bookended, it's got the bookends, this, this section of Mark, this opening section. And Mark is flagging the fact that this is about the gospel and the gospel means good news. It was a word used in those days of announcing victory in a war, that kind of good news. Not just the good news that the next bus is only five minutes away, might be good news, but a much bigger thing that the war is over. So imagine tonight President Zelensky telling, telling the world that the Russian troops have all withdrawn or are about to withdraw from Ukrainian territory, and President Putin has promised to pay reparations for all damage caused. Imagine. Now, at least if you're a supporter of Ukraine, that is really good news. It's that kind of sense that this word has. For the first readers, that's what they would have resonated with. And similarly, it was used, perhaps something we can identify more easily with, for the announcement of the safe arrival of a baby. Announcement. A baby has been safely born. Rejoice with us. Good news. Such good news. And Mark, you see, is wanting to excite us and to enthrall us with the good news of Jesus. For, as verse 1 puts it, he is Jesus Christ. Now, it's not his surname, it's a title. It's the king. That's what it means, the anointed king. And not a mere human king, he's Christ the Son of God. 
Now, if you know the book of Mark at all, you'll know that this verse one is setting the agenda for the whole book. The end of the first half of Mark, the end of chapter eight, Peter, the apostle Peter, will cry out in answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. You are the king. And then at the end of the second half of the book, as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, a crucified king, a Roman soldier, the centurion, the captain, if you like, who's in charge of the execution of Jesus, he will cry out, surely this man, pointing to Jesus, this Jesus was the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of God. So this is in the sense, this very opening verse, very opening phrase, is setting the agenda for the book. But back to chapter one, verse two, Mark goes on, as it is written in Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was the first and greatest of the major prophets, the big ones, if you look at your Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those whopping great prophets, and was preaching 700 years or so before Christ. And the quote is from the reading we had earlier in Isaiah 40, verse 3. Uh, so chapter, uh, verse 3 of, of Mark 1, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Mark switches it to the crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So Mark is telling us that the backstory of Jesus goes centuries back behind Jesus to an ancient prophecy. In fact, he, he prefaces it with some words from another ancient prophecy, not quite so ancient, but from Malachi, who was a minor prophet. But the big quote, hence, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, is from Isaiah 40. And if you remember how it was read by Barbara earlier, it goes on to talk about the way of the Lord and the majesty of God coming to this earth. Behold your God. Look, it's God who's come. Now, I know some people have been up in, into town to see some of the preparations for tomorrow and the amazing flags and, and avenues and things. Some of our family have been up there and sent us photos. So we've seen it. You've seen it on the telly. Um, the, half the world's leaders are coming to London today and will be there tomorrow at the funeral. So the preparations have been absolutely vast. And that's just because temporary passing leaders of this world are coming for a day. Well, when God is coming, the preparations are absolutely enormous. That's the point. You prepare the way of the Lord. This is a big deal. God is coming to earth, is what the ancient prophecy said. And Mark is saying, look, it's all happening in Jesus. God coming to earth, look at Jesus. This is the fulfillment. As Jesus himself says in verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The ancient prophecies are coming to pass. And the message, Mark 1, 3, is going to be found through a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Cue John the Baptist, verse 4. John appeared. The most popular preacher in Jesus' day until Jesus came along. And yet his message was tough and uncompromising. Look at it in verse 4. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, of course, all the people who came to him 
were, were Jews or God-fearers who, who joined the Jewish religion, if you like. And one of the great things about being a Jew is that you knew you were clean and the rest of the world were the unclean people. You were clean. So John is being very radical and provocative in saying to these people who are supposedly clean, you need to be washed. You are dirty. You need to submit to a public washing. Imagine how humiliating that is. To show that you admit that you are a dirty rebel. And yet, I can tell you, he says, it's for the forgiveness of sins. God will forgive your rebellion against his authority, your refusal to have him as king. It's a tough old message. And yet, did it stop people coming? No. If, if John had been alive today, he'd be an internet sensation with millions of followers. Look at verse 5. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. And what a figure he cut. As Mark points out, verse 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair. I don't think it was like a fancy camel hair coat from Savile Row, by the way. It was rough camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Now, how is your fashion sense? Are you good at dressing well? I really struggle. I'm constantly sent back to the bedroom to change it. Um, but uh, not very good on the fashion myself. But that's why I like John the Baptist, really, because I think, you know, he and I probably had similar ideas. Um, as for diet, I'm not totally sure about this, although apparently it's very healthy, isn't it, uh, eating fried locusts? Anyone have fried locusts? No one's admitting it in public, anyway. Honey, yeah, wild honey, delicious. Uh, very good for you. But despite his popularity, he's not hogging the limelight, is he? He's pointing the spotlight away from himself. Do you see that in verse 7? He preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now in the culture of those days, uh, where you didn't wear socks, but you wore shoes, well sandals, and you got your feet very dirty, just going about the place. Um, and it was the job of the slave to wash the feet of a guest in a home where there were slaves. It was not the job of anybody else. And what John is saying here is, I'm not even worthy to be the slave of this man. But who's he, ta who's he talking about? Well, there it is at the end, or in verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came. He's talking about Jesus. And then come the first, comes the first of two huge shocks. Here's the first shock. It's in verse 9. This Jesus, so heralded, so pointed to, the one who is mightier than even the great preacher John the Baptist, he comes along to be baptized by John in the Jordan, verse 9. Now, we've just been told, haven't we, in verse 4, that the baptism that John was delivering was a baptism of 
repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And at the end of verse 5, the people baptized, baptized were baptized confessing their sins. So the obvious deduction from that is that Jesus is coming along as someone who says, I need to confess my sins. I need to be baptized. You think, is that right? This one who is mightier than John, whose strap of his sandals he's not worthy to stoop down and untie, who's going to himself baptize with the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit? Is he a sinner? Is that why he's being baptized? Well, the answer to that question, because it is a bit of a shock at first sight to see Jesus presenting himself for John's baptism, comes when you see what happens immediately after he's baptized in verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 10. When Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. It's a very graphic phrase. It's like someone has grabbed hold of the heavens and, and torn them so that there's a great hole in the sky. And everybody there saw it. And doubtless some people saw it first and said, look, look at there. It's like there's an enormous tear in the sky. And then a second thing was, was visible. The Spirit, verse 10, descending on Jesus like a dove. It's not a dove, but it looks like a dove. <clears throat> and it's visible. It's not someone having a vision or Jesus imagining something. Everybody saw this dove-like thing coming down from heaven. And it's quite graphically put in the Greek, in Mark's Greek. He says, descending into Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're not entirely sure, but it, it could be that, that this dove-like form that came down from, as it were, the tear in heaven came right down to Jesus as he emerged out of the, the River Jordan, kind of went into Jesus and disappeared. But it was clearly visible as coming to Jesus, <clears throat> whatever actually happened at the last moment, when it arrived on Jesus. And then, of course, there's the third thing. Verse 11, a voice from heaven. Now, if we were thinking, well, maybe is, this is remarkable. None of the other people that John baptized had this happen when they come up out of the water. What is going on here? Well, surely that any doubt is removed that Jesus might perhaps be a sinner after all by verse 10, 11 rather. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I'm not ticking you off for being a sinner and glad that you're finally confessing your sins. No, you're one who is well-pleasing to me. You are my beloved son, the voice of God from heaven. So now I think Mark immediately makes clear that Jesus is not submitting to John's baptism because he's a sinner who needs to confess his sins. So why is Jesus submitting to baptism? Well, I think the answer implicitly and necessarily is this, that Jesus is submitting to baptism to identify with sinners, not because he is a sinner, but to stand with sinners as if he were a sinner. 
Now, I don't know what you think of David Beckham. Who? Ah, well, never mind. Um, David Beckham, famous footballer, rich guy. You saw him, didn't you? Interview? Did you? How many people saw the interview with David Beckham? <clears throat> for those who didn't see the interview with David Beckham, for those who have no idea who David Beckham is, famous England footballer, Manchester United, da-da-da-da. Um, David would be in his 40s now, I think. Is that right? Yeah, a Man U supporter nodding his head there. Um, and he queued for how many hours was it? 13. 13 hours. He stood in the queue and then with his lovely old hat on, his peak cap. But of course that was off when he came to Westminster Hall because he was there to pay respects to our late queen. Now, other people, no, not mentioning any names, pulled strings and skipped the queue. Not David Beckham. Now, I don't know about you, but I really respect the guy for doing that. And what is it I respect about him? When you, when you think about it, he, he just said, I want to be like a normal bloke, like one of the rest of the people of this country. You, if they want to go and pay their respects to the remains of the Queen in Westminster Hall, they need to stand in a queue for, could be 13 hours, before they finally get there. He didn't pull rank. He acted as one of the people. And there's a sense in which when Jesus was baptized, he wasn't pulling rank. He was acting like he was one of the sinners, like the rest of humanity. But we know he's different. But you say, well, okay, he's identifying with sinners like us. But does he really know what it's like to face temptation the way we do? Or is he like someone who, who dons a fancy military uniform but has never fought on the front line and has all these fake medals, in a sense, on his chest? Well, the second huge shock of these verses answers that question in verses 12 and 13. Does Jesus really know what it's like? to be tested like we are? Well, have a look at verse 12. No sooner has Jesus come up out of the water and these extraordinary things happen, the, the heavens torn open, the, the, the dove-like figure descending, the Spirit coming down on Jesus, the voice saying, you are my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. No sooner has that happened than the Spirit who's come right down on him to join him in his mission drives him into the teeth of temptation by the arch enemy of God. This is the bit in the story or the film where, where the hero is transported to the, to the heart of the evil empire. You know that bit in all the sort of Bond movie type things where, where James Bond finds himself right in the room where the evil villain operates from, his center of operations. And Satan, of course, the word means adversary. So there is Jesus being tempted by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness with only the support, well, only the support of angels ministering. 
and the ever-present danger of wild animals. And what happens? Look at verse 13. What happens? Nothing. What does it tell us about what happens? Nothing. But that's just the point. Nothing happened. Satan failed to tempt Jesus to do wrong. Nothing happened. In other words, Jesus passes the test with flying colors. He refuses to give in to temptation. Even after a full 40 days in the desert, he is undefeated. Unlike Adam and Eve, our first humans who capitulated at the first temptation, no resistance there. You know, temptation is much harder when you resist it, isn't it? Is that old, was it George Bernard Shaw? One, or, no, it's Oscar Wilde, isn't it, about the one thing I can't resist is temptation. Well, it, it's, a, it's a classic sort of not very nice line. But you and I know that the easiest thing when we're tempted is just to give in. But if we resist, it can be hard, and if we keep resisting, it gets harder. So don't fall for the lie that it was easy for Jesus, wasn't it? Because he was divine as well as human. No, he never gave in to temptation. So he had to lift much heavier weights than we've ever had to lift. And he, he, he never dropped them. So that 40 days, in a sense, was like hell. But he never capitulated. So... To recap on these two shocks, Jesus first emerges from the water. He's being baptized, that's a shock. But he's wonderfully reassured of his status as God's son and of God's approval and help. And then he emerges from the desert, tested and approved for the mission ahead. And what is his mission? Here it is in verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, the gospel of God, the great news, which is what? Verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time for God to finally sort out the mess of this world has arrived at last. Just as he promised. And it's all about his kingdom. But what does that mean? What does it mean, his kingdom, the kingdom of God? Well, I find it helpful to think in these terms that the kingdom of God is not about a place, but about a person. It's not about a territory. It's about somebody. So the coming of the kingdom is the coming of the king. It is dynamic and relational. It's a bit like being a British citizen in this regard, that you can live anywhere in the world. You don't have to live in this particular territory where we are now to be a British citizen. Look inside your passport. I've got mine here with me. What does it say? Inside cover. It says her, well, his now. His Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires in the name of His Majesty, 
all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as may be necessary. His Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires in the name of His Majesty, of the King. Now, I've never met Charles. You would have no idea who I am, but because I'm a British citizen, I am one of his subjects now. And there is a relationship. It's evidenced by this. That is my mugshot. What counts is your relationship with the king. And you say with me, well, I don't know King Charles either. Well, the great news about Jesus is that we can know him and that better and better. And he knows us individually and personally, completely through and through. From before we were conceived to this very moment, to this very last breath that we've taken a second ago. And what is required, very simply, is a double response to this truth about Jesus, this good news about the King. There it is at the end of verse 15. Repent and believe in the good news. Admit, in other words, that you have stood, maybe very silently and very politely, but clearly holding not a blank piece of paper, but one that says about Jesus, not my King. That's the great rebellion in this world. That's the sin that needs to be confessed above all sins. And instead, you need to hold up a piece of paper that says about Jesus, yes, my King. The King who will transform your life. For as verse 8 puts it, He's the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will effect a profound spiritual cleansing of your life inside your conscience, cleansed. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Does your conscience not act like my conscience and constantly pick up the things that you've said and done and thought wrong and remind you of them? Well, to have that slate wiped clean, to have that conscience cleansed is the most wonderful gift that we can be given in this world. I was thinking about it, that there's a sense in which we, out of this passage, we call John, John the Baptist. Well, I think we should call Jesus, Jesus the Baptist, because he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and it's wonderful. Yes, we, when that's happened, we are to declare our allegiance to him through water baptism, but that's only to reflect that spirit baptism. So if you're not yet a Christian and you're listening to this, you need to change your mind about your king, or the king, Jesus, rather. You need to change your piece of paper. You need to tear up the one that says, not my king. And you need to declare, no, Jesus is my king. And if you're a Christian today, you should rejoice that, that Jesus has baptized you with the Spirit that he's changed the water you swim in, the air you breathe. He, he's brought you into the sphere of his kingdom, into relationship with himself. So that every day now is a day of repenting and believing, of turning from rebellion against Jesus the King, the Son of God, and trusting in his loving purposes and power. 
And whatever you think of King Charles III, son of Elizabeth, this is such good news about King Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, would you please convince us afresh that this message about Jesus, the King, the Son of God, is such great news that we should be wanting to shout it from the rooftops, that we should rejoice in it every day, and that if Jesus is not yet our King, we should tear up the old sheet not my king, and write the new sheet, yes, my king. Amen. We're going to stand and sing before we gather around the Lord's table to remember his death as our king. <laughs>